Hi, everyone. One note before this episode starts. For technical reasons, Ryan and I recorded this episode in the same room. Somehow, the recording of my audio got really messed up and is unusable, but fortunately, the mic that Ryan was using picked up my voice. So I will sound echoey and far away, but at least I'm there. Thanks for understanding. Oh, and if you haven't watched the movies yet, The Sting and The Exorcist use some pretty vulgar language. Watch at your discretion. Now, this is the moment you've been waiting for. The nominated are for the best motion picture of the year. And from an abundance of excellence, we have nominated. Well, we come now to the final award of the evening, the one for best picture. And here are the nominees for best picture of the year. When we're at the movies, we're not alone. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. This seemed like a better idea in rehearsal. Welcome to Nominated. I am your host, Haley, and this week my guest is the man, the myth, the legend, our logo designer, Mr. Ryan Aid. What's up? Thank you so much for joining me, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Um, I told you this before we started recording, but I get so many compliments on that logo, and I'm always super excited when I see it, so I'm always like, yeah. Well, on like a really quick side note, that was actually the commission that kind of started this. um, I went through a very good COVID has been very good to me. (laughs) I, uh, after that, then I got like our, our mutual friend Jay got in touch with me and I did the logo for her soap company. That was super fun. And I think Rempel was either just before you or just after you, but you were part of like this sort of like renaissance that I, a personal (laughs) renaissance I went through. The renaissance of Ryan. Yes. (laughs) So uh, we decided to do the movies that were released in 1973. And so we're present at the 1974 Academy Awards. Those were American Graffiti, A Touch of Class, Cries and Whispers, The Sting, and The Exorcist. Uh, So Ryan, which movie do you want to start with? Um... We're gonna. Well, I, I want to finish with The Exorcist because that's the one I'm going to talk about the most. But uh, we can start with A Touch of Class if you'd like. Absolutely. So A Touch of Class, you did not watch this movie, correct? Um, I was not able to find it, but I did. I read the synopsis on Wikipedia and I was able to watch a few clips in a trailer. I think that gives you a good idea of the movie. Yeah. I, I did watch it. So... A Touch of Class is a romantic comedy. It was released June 20th, 1973. It is produced by Melvin Frank. It was directed by Melvin Frank. It was written by Melvin Frank and Jack Rose. The cinematography was by Austin Denster. It was edited by Bill Butler. The music was by John Cameron. It runs 106 minutes. It stars George Segal, Glenda Jackson, Paul Servino, Hildegard Neal, and Mary Barkley. It was nominated for Best Actress for Glenda Jackson, uh, Best Original Music, Best Original Song, and Best Original Screenplay, as well as Best Picture. Uh, The story of A Touch of Class is in the 70s in Britain, a man and a woman have a couple chance meetings and he eventually convinces her to become his mistress. And... (laughs) It all goes awry for a little while, and then they fall in love, they decide they would like to be together, and it ends with them breaking up. Um, 
I'm gonna tell you right now, I did not like this movie. <laughs> it's, it calls itself a romantic comedy, and there were definitely moments where I was laughing, but I'm just like, this isn't interesting. I hate the main character because I personally think that anybody who cheats is a scumbag. Mm-hmm. And just this idea that this woman would be willing to help this man have an affair. And these situations were very funny, I do admit that. So mm. they go to Spain. And it's things like they're on the they're getting on the plane to Spain and someone he happens to know through work appears and is like, hey, we can sit together on a plane. And so she's like, okay, well, I guess I got to go over here because he knows you're married. Um, and then through the whole vacation, mm. this friend eventually figures out that they're having an affair and he finally comes to George Seagal's character. I don't even remember what the character's names were. Exactly. Yeah. They, they were not memorable. And it's just like trying to hide that something is happening and all of these things. And I think if it actually had, if the whole point of it was that you're laughing at these two idiots, mm-hmm. then I think it would have been very fun. But the whole point of the movie is you find love in unusual places. Mm-hmm. Except when you don't. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> if that was the message, they missed it by a mile. Yeah. I, I just. I, I don't understand why this movie was nominated. There was nothing that stood out about it that made it really significantly interesting. Like, costumes were what I expected costumes mm-hmm. to be. The, uh, there was a lot of outdoor scenes, so it was clearly a lot of filmed on location stuff, so mm-hmm. that you kind of can't judge on. Um, the apartment that they have is very, very cute. I want that apartment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, update it with all 2020 stuff. Um, and then... Like, the music, I barely even noticed. The characters were missable. Like, it just... Well, I, one <sighs> thing I... As, as a fan of funny, <laughs> one thing that disgusted me about this was that the... Because it it's a British film, mm-hmm. and I don't know what the reasoning was for making the main uh, male character American, because I found that, like, it was... The, the two of them just had no chemistry. I know. And it was that feeling of like it's the dry it's the dry, more sarcastic English type of wit met with the beat you over the head American style of comedy and it just didn't work. Yeah, and I think I think you could find there's a lot of comedy in the idea of like an American and a Brit misunderstanding yeah. what the other's saying. But that's not what they went for no and it's like which in a way i'm kind of happy about because then you know the film would have just devolved into like her being like can you get can you go to the store and get me some chips and he brings back like a bag of actual chips and And she's like no i want hot chips she's like that's not what i mean he goes oh jeepers like and see again that would have been yuck Still not Academy Award no. worthy, in my opinion. Absolutely but, but not. But that would have at least made me laugh. Yeah. Well, it was funny, too, because like, just from the few clips that I watched, I was I literally found myself waiting for canned laughter because that was the caliber of the jokes. Totally felt like. Yeah. In A Touch of Class, I just felt... I, I was just bored the whole way through. I was bored and I was angry that I was forcing myself to watch this. Well, there was, there was one part where I was just like... Oh, it was, um, what was it? it it's, uh, they're talking and she's like, they're in his hotel room and she says something to the effect of like, are we going to have sex? And he's like, why do women always assume that? Why can't I just be trying to have a nice dinner with you or something? And then she's like, but do you? He's like, yes. 
Yeah. And there was this awkward pause where I was like, ew. Because I'm like, I know what you're doing. It's You're doing that like wink to the audience of like pause for effect. And I'm like, we understood it, dummy. We just didn't yeah. find it funny. Oh, <laughs> boo. And, and yeah, I like I could find Glenda Jackson's character charming if it weren't for the fact that she is like going along with helping a man cheat. So. Yeah. It's just odd to have a movie like that where you're supposed to... In, in every movie, you're supposed to root for the character in some way. Yeah. Even if they're a scumbag, there's supposed to be something likable about them. I was like, well, These... the thing is, you can root for someone's downfall. Yeah. That is viable. I mean, that was the whole purpose of Joker. Sure. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, the, there was just... Oh, it's like, it's a comedy. These should be likable, and they're just not likable. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm going to move on from a touch of class so that we're not grumpy for the rest sure. of the day. Sure. Uh, let's move on to American Graffiti. Ah, this one was interesting. Yeah. So this is a coming-of-age comedy. It was released August 2nd, 1973 at the Locarno Film Festival. It was produced by Francis Ford Coppola and Gary Kurtz, directed by George Lucas, written by George Lucas, Gloria Katz, and Willard Hayek, cinematography by Ron Eveslage and Jan Delquin, Edited by Verna Freeds and Marsha Lucas. Sort of. We'll get into that. It runs 112 minutes. It stars Richard Dreyfus, Ron Howard, Paul Lamatt, Charles Martin, Charles Martin Smith, Cindy Williams, Candy Clark, Mackenzie Phillips, Harrison Ford, Suzanne Summers, and Wolfman Jack. It was nominated for Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actress for Clark, and Best Film Editing. So American Graffiti takes place in 1962. It is the story of the last night of freedom before uh, the two boys go off to college and how do they celebrate that? How do they come to terms with growing up? How do they move on? And the friends that they pick up and leave behind along the way. Mm -hmm. And it is all centered on cars. Because this was 1962. Cars were a big deal. And the fact that most of them had cars was quite a bit of freedom. Um, So Richard Dreyfuss's character in the movie, he focuses on trying to find the woman in the white T-bird, played by Suzanne Somers, which surprised me when I realized that. And Ron Howard and his girlfriend, who I believe was played by Cindy Williams, if I'm remembering correctly, they have to come to terms with the fact that they love each other too much and he can't leave her. Mm. And there's a street race where Harrison Ford is a cowboy. Uh, most unlikable character I've ever seen him be. <laughs> and the Wolfman Jack's... Um, radio broadcasts kind of underscore the entire movie yeah so what did you think of this movie um i overall enjoyed it like i don't have anything i can overtly really complain about um (laughs) it was very odd to see a movie that was directed by george lucas with harrison ford in it and there weren't uh like little creatures running around or laser weapons (laughs) (laughs) um it was funny because the, the thing that interested me so much about this movie was like the stuff that went on behind the scenes and like George Lucas could not catch a break like that. I really wow. respect him much more now than I did in the yeah. sense of like he even with Star Wars under his belt, he had to fight for everything. Yeah. Yeah, that's the big thing about George Lucas as a filmmaker in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. He there he was not a cult 
phenomenon. People were like, oh, this is some weird art house director who mm-hmm. came up with this sci-fi thing called THX 1138. Like, it, people were so weirded out by that that trying to give him a chance was a huge risk, mm-hmm. especially for uh, Francis Ford Coppola to say, no, I have faith in this young filmmaker and that mm-hmm. I actually want to see what he's making. And uh, American Graffiti was a really good shift, I think. Yeah. This is one of those movies where it's so light. The The story is not the point. The point is that you're enjoying watching the characters mm-hmm. go through one night. And I can, I can live with that. I can live with a, a movie that doesn't give me good story because it gives me good character. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I watched this movie with my family years and years ago. And I remember my dad saying, like, this was such a seminal movie to him because it was... It was his generation. Like, he was yes. born in yes. 57, maybe? Right. I, so, yeah, you just you can just agree to that. Sure. I um, cannot confirm or deny that. Yeah, I can't remember. I can never remember what year my dad was born. Uh, but, like, even though he wasn't the right age at the time that the movie was set, when the movie came out in 1973, he was at the right age that this really hit him as, like, Right, yeah. Totally the right age. He could understand all of the things they were going through. And my dad is very much an old soul. So for him, seeing all these old cars and listening to all this old music mm-hmm. is just like very reminiscent for him. The movie definitely, it, it felt very much it was a product of a certain time. Did it feel like happy days? Do you know a little bit? Yeah, I'd have to watch. Because I'd have to like. Happy Days was inspired by this movie. Okay, that make the whole Ron Howard thing makes a lot more sense I now. <laughs> I, I spent half the movie watching it, and I was like, I know this guy. Why do I know this guy? What has he been? And then I like looked it up, and it said Ron Howard. I was like, oh my god, of course it's Ron Howard. <laughs> it's like one of his early movie roles. I, he did a wonderful job in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like He was the, the geeky high school boyfriend who just was doing what he thought he was supposed to do. There's this whole idea that, like, you can't mm-hmm. go to college a virgin, and it's like, why not? Yeah, exactly. And, like, don't pressure your girlfriend. I will say, very, very dated attitude towards women in this movie. Yes, and I mean, like, there's so many movies that... Like, I was just driving with uh, my wife the other day, and we were... I was explaining... Like, my wife is... For the listeners out there, my wife is four years younger than me, so there's certain things that it's, it doesn't happen often, but there are certain things I'm aware of where she's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and vice versa. Yeah. And um, for, oddly enough, even though this has nothing to do with my age, uh, she I was explaining the scene to her in Revenge of the Nerds, mm-hmm. where like uh, the one nerd is like like uh, him and the jock boyfriend of the main like hot girl mm-hmm. are both wearing Darth Vader costumes at this party <laughs> and he like sneaks in while the guy is out and has sex with the girl and then when he pulls off the Darth Vader mask she's like you're not you're not Chad or whatever the line was and she goes wow you were good I'm like cause that's how that goes yeah totally holy shit I was just like that scene has aged so poorly yeah and and again, I give it a pass mm-hmm. for certain aspects aging poorly. I think it, all things considered, American Graffiti is pretty timeless mm-hmm. because it's it uses the time that it's in so well. Like 
question. Yeah. Sorry not to cut you off. Would you describe this as a period piece? Absolutely. Because at first I didn't think about it, but as we're talking about it now, I'm like, this is definitely a period piece. Because the thing is, it was filmed in 1972, released in 1973, but it's set in 1962. So to me, it's totally a period piece. It's of the time that it's trying to represent. Also, on a technical note, I, I would say it's a bold choice to film the fact that most of it takes place at night mm-hmm. and like technology for filming things at night at the time was, wasn't like incredible. It was better than like, it's obviously it's better than its predecessors, but yeah, they at least had lights. Well, cause like what a lot of movies back used to do back in the day when they had to film a night scene is they just filmed it during the day and then they put a blue filter over mm-hmm. the film. So it looked like moonlight rather than sunlight. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they weren't doing that here and they're like, I know we don't have great lighting, let's shoot anyways. Yeah. And yeah. It, I felt it was a bold choice and it really gave the film a unique flavor. Yeah. Like that you it, wouldn't have got otherwise. It made you want to figure out what was happening at every moment. Mm-hmm. You, were, you were engaged with every moment. Yeah. And I mean, they kind of go back and forth in the beginning where they're driving up and down the strip and then they go to the drive-in and then they go driving up and down the strip again. Mm-hmm. And it's is really nice to have like that dark moody lighting as everyone's driving around and like um john is trying to pick up girls in the cars and Mm -hmm. stuff like that and then they go to the drive-in and it's like this kind of it's like the hub yeah it's the place you always come back to it's to be a complete nerd about it it's kind of like the spawn point Mm. it's it's your start it's your home it's where you always come back to when you need to reset or save as it were uh and then it's also where kind of a lot of the conflict ends up happening because like Ron Howard's character Steve um, chatting with the waitress Mm -hmm. then you have um, Cindy Williams his girlfriend Lori coming up and like this is the place they always hang out with Mm -hmm. or sorry hang out at and she wants to go talk to him but uh, he's talking to the waitress so he's moved on from her Mm -hmm. and then she goes somewhere else like they leave kind of that point and it gets dark again yeah so it's kind of like that's where all the light comes from maybe i'm reading too much into it oh no well i mean in (laughs) cinema you can never read too much into things and and i think i think i i am the kind of person i am i have such diverse opinions about george lucas it literally depends on what day you talk to me as to how i feel about it to quote Patton oswalt i simultaneously want to shake his hand and hit him with a shovel like that's that's how i feel about uh George on a, uh, on a good day. He basically. is. He's brilliant. He has all these great ideas. He has really good understanding of technique and how mm-hmm. do you bring everything together. I think that he's a terrible story writer. I think that's kind of what it comes down mm, to. Maybe. Yeah. Um, but I mean, every moment of this movie, I wanted to see what the next part was. Yeah. Uh, like even just watching Toad make a complete ass of himself, mm-hmm. <laughs> left, right, and center. Like I. I hated Toad because I thought he was a stupid idiot, mm-hmm. but I loved him because I knew that I hated him. Like, yes. He did a great job. Um, I want to talk just a little bit about the music. Right, right. So I am much more into music history than you are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and so listening to it, like it's it's all the music of that era. It was all music that was released in and around 1962, and it's... Mm-hmm. I would say that that's not my style of music. Like, I'm definitely not a surf rock kind of person. Right. Uh, but at one point, they started playing Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs, which is, like, one of my favorite songs ever. Right. And 
I legitimately just closed my eyes and just listened to the music for that like, hmm. 30 seconds it was playing because it just everything about it was so right mm-hmm. and that was one of the hallmarks of Wolfman Jack the radio host he just always knew what the right song was. Right. <laughs> well, I almost like, as I was watching this, I'm like, this almost feels like like a funnier version of Stand By Me in a way. Mm, in that, like, I was like, there is a slightly, if this movie was a recipe, there would be a call for like a pinch of Stephen King. <laughs> in the sense that yeah. like, and it even does like end with the whole thing of like, here's what happened to everyone after. I know. Oh, I didn't need that gut punch. Yeah. Sometimes I just like to not find out what happened to the characters. Yeah, let me just enjoy that moment. But I think because it's a coming-of-age movie, it's important mm-hmm. to know what happens to them after. Yeah. Even if it's utterly depressing. Yeah, I get, it plays on that idea of like sometimes things in life are not going to go the way you intended, and that's part of growing up. We're going to move on to Cries and Whispers, I think. Cries and Whispers is a period drama. It was released on March 5th, 1973 in Sweden. It was actually released in 1972 in the States, but because its official release was 73, it qualified for the 1973 um, award season. It was produced by Lars O. Carlberg, directed by Ingmar Bergman and written by Ingmar Bergman, cinematography by Sven Nyquist, edited by Siv Lundgren, Music, okay, I was annoyed by this. It says the music is by Johann Sebastian Bach and Frédéric Chopin. Uh, they didn't exactly write the music for this movie, so mm. I don't think that's accurate. Uh, it runs 91 minutes. It stars Harriet Anderson, Kari Sylvan, Ingrid Tullin, Liv Ullman, Inga Gill, and Erland Josefsen. It is narrated by Ingmar Bergman. It was nominated for Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Costume Design. Uh, It won Best Cinematography. So this, I take objection to the fact that they call it a period drama because I would call it an art house film. Mm. The story of the film is of three sisters coming to terms with one sister's death by presumed uterine cancer we don't know just because it's not explained and how the three of them find their places with each other again and their servant she's just kind of present all the way through so she has a strong attachment to the sister that's dying um unfortunately the sister does eventually die and so the other two sisters then have to decide how they are going to reconnect with each other if at all Mm -hmm. and decide what their next steps are right and this is why i would call it an art house film because i just gave you a summary but i'm not 100 percent sure that that's what the movie is about and that is such a notorious thing in scandinavian film Mm -hmm. is that you're never quite sure categorically where it's supposed to be yeah yeah like one of my favorite um i think it's a swedish movie they made the american title they they did a a despicable remake of it a few years ago it's called let i think the original english title is let the right one in and it's a movie about a kid who finds out that his neighbor who appears to be a 12 year old girl is actually a vampire and um 
it's like you go into it assuming it's a horror movie but as you watch it you're like this is this is like it's got horror elements but it's also a drama and there's like a love story at the same time so yeah i've always found that like the scandinavians are very good for not feeling confined by genre yeah yeah i agree with that and and i think when you get into the like art house style films Mm. that's when you kind of let yourself expand so sure the story i'm telling is this one storyline but that doesn't Mm. mean i can't weave other things in and i think that's really good in its own way um this movie i i hated so much that i loved it Mm. (laughs) that's that's one thing i've kind of learned is like Every year that I do this pod, I do a podcast episode on, what I end up getting is one movie that I couldn't stand that I thought was terrible and I don't understand why it was nominated, mm. and one movie that I hated everything about it and it made me so angry, but I'm still thinking about it four days later. Mm-hmm. And then every other movie is like, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Or like, occasionally I'll have one that opens my mind. Right. This was the movie I hated so much that I loved it. It um, It's depressing. It's upsetting. It's weird. Mm. and it purposely blurs the line between what is reality in this movie and what is not you have no clue all the way through Mm -hmm. and honestly the first thing that struck me was in that first scene with the sister uh, which one was she? Agnes waking up and seeing uh, Maria in in the next room and just this contrast of all these women in beautiful white dresses and nightgowns and this like blood red mm-hmm. background it was to me it didn't it felt like the director was trying to create an image mm-hmm. rather than tell a story that was specifically what i wanted to talk about cuz as i was watching that that part because first of all it doesn't hurt that my favorite color is red um (laughs) but more than that i was like speaking from like a theater background as i'm sure you're familiar with it was i was like you could absolutely stage this as a play and it would not be very different from the movie yes all I could think was like red gobos, red gobos everywhere. Like, yeah, yes, it has been adapted for the stage in 2010. Mm-hmm. They adapted it. And uh, honestly, um, do you remember? So, for everyone listening out there who doesn't know me and Ryan personally, uh, we went to university together studying drama. And there was one year at the Flight Festival, which was all about student work, where I did, I stage managed a play called The Intruder. Do you remember um, The Intruder? I think so, yeah. This this is very reminiscent reminiscent to me of The Intruder. Like, red is such a beautiful, lush color. Mm-hmm. Um, and people saying things, but not necessarily saying what they're thinking. And uh, just, like, rich internal lives that you get to see played out just a little bit. And kind of that blurring between reality and... Uh, imagination Mm -hmm. as well so the whole time like not the whole time every now and again I would just feel like oh this is very intruder Mm -hmm. Uh, which which I love again I like a movie that doesn't tell me like a movie doesn't have to have a beginning a middle and an end as far as I'm right yeah I think that you can tell a story without any of those elements Mm -hmm. and cries and whispers did a really good job of that yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, 
I have already taken my moment to rant about how I don't think Bach and Chopin were uh, the, the creators of the soundtrack, but I, this was one of those movies where the music didn't add, but it also didn't take away. It right. existed, and it was right, but I didn't really notice it. Yeah, it's not something that you would think of like as standing out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is one of those movies where there's a lot of interpretations mm-hmm. that people have. Like, there's an entire section all about the themes and interpretations and what does all of us mean. I I think you can read all of it in in that. Like, there's mm-hmm. definitely a line of where they're like where the gender roles and where the expectations are. But at the same time, I just think like none of it matters because it's just about these sisters coping. Yeah. With themselves and with each other. Well, and I I liked how it played with the theme of isolation. Mm -hmm. And the idea that, like, the distance between... I I can't remember any of the characters, but the distance between um, the two... Uh, what were they here? The not sick sisters. I was I was gonna say the not cancer sisters, but that felt inappropriate. So, <laughs> um, Karen. The healthy sisters and the, the sisters, sisters, the unhealthy. The, yeah. the distance between them. Yeah. But also the idea that these these people literally live in a castle. Yes. And in in such a large space, you could still feel very confined and very um, by yourself, really. Mm-hmm. And I I think. Part of that, too, comes from the fact that, like, you can tell this is a very large space. Mm. Like, the castle itself is very large. And you look at the different times when the sisters are eating with their husbands. Like, when Karen is eating with her husband, uh, Frederick, and Anna is eating with Joachim, Joachim. Like, these are huge rooms and a huge table. And, like, you can physically see the distance between them. Mm-hmm. And it it really tells you that like these sisters feel so disconnected from everything and from each other. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you get to the end where Anna and Karin are like, they, they have this reconciliation where they're like touching each other's faces constantly, which I did not understand. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's just a me thing. And then Karin is like, Anna, do you remember that we did this? And or, sorry, Maria. Maria is the sister. Anna is the uh, servant. Karin and Maria are like, Karin's trying to say, Maria, do you remember that you touched me? And Maria's like, I don't remember all those little things. And I was like, that was a really significant moment. And you were just trying to distance yourself from it. You're trying to act like it never mm-hmm. happened. And also, it happened like the day your other sister died. So, like, Maria went from being this really sympathetic character to me to being like almost a villain. Right. And I, I didn't understand why. And that's why I hated it. <laughs> Fair enough. I, what I kind of like about that angle, though, is that it's very true to life. That, mm-hmm. like, it's almost like similar to, like, the writing of George R. R. Martin, where it's like characters can go through these changes where they start out very likable and end up becoming hateable mm-hmm. and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. I can get that still doesn't mean I like it. <laughs> oh, I'm not saying it's good. <laughs> but that's okay. Yeah, and no, this was definitely the most, like... I like the uh, the art house mm-hmm. description. This was definitely the most... If, if any of these four was an experimental film, this was the one. Yeah, absolutely. And I like it. 
it's interesting. It's worth watching once. Mm-hmm. Although I will say, the effects when Karen supposedly mutilates herself. Uh, right. Did you get that? That's what she was doing. Not, not me neither. I want, so so the moment that we're talking about, um, Karen takes a piece of glass, and all you see really is that she puts it under her dress, and that she seems to be in pain, and then she goes to the bed she shares with her husband and she opens her legs and you can see that she's bleeding so i had a few different interpretations of that i didn't know was she like trying to fake that she was having a period and then she took the blood and wiped it across her face and i was like no no she's crazy um so Mm. that was the other thing was like oh is she just losing her mind um and then and then later in the movie she talks about having like self-harm and suicidal thoughts and i was just like this woman is not okay, and also that scene with the glass, like, as a woman, is very terrifying to me. Yeah. Like, I just, I don't get why you would do that, and why did you have to show me? Yeah, it was, um, that was a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of those movies where you can kind of, where I can give a certain amount of leeway, because, like, you are trying to be art house, you are trying to be different and interesting, but at the same time... Uh, I don't get it. <laughs> it. It was one of those things where I'm like, I don't know if this was a good decision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like if I was reading the script, I would have. Been, sorry, what's the director's name? Uh, Ingmar Bergman. Yeah, I'd be I'd be reading the script like, hey Bergman, can we chat about this for a sec? Um, are we sure that we're not going? Because you should push boundaries and yeah. you should do things that are controversial i think but there is also at the same time like you do have to stop and ask yourself is this too much yeah yeah i i would equate this movie to being like a slice of life Mm. sort of picture because they tell you part of everyone's story Mm. but you never actually know like you don't follow one person's arc right the only person who you kind of see an, an ending to is Agnes and that's only because she dies halfway through the movie right so that's about all I have with Cries and Whispers yeah I think yeah like my biggest takeaway was the the brilliant use of red and like mm-hmm. the fact that again like I almost wondered like did Ingmar Bergman start out in theater because this was during that time oh, okay. where a lot of movies there were a lot of movies made back like certainly before the 70s but even during the 70s and like the early 80s where they had that vibe to them where you're like this this could work in its current state as a play yes yes i totally agree so he studied art and literature spent most of his time involved in student theater yep there you go (laughs) yep absolutely okay good my education paid off then yeah Oh, hooray. Glad those $15,000 I gave. Yep. <laughs> but, and yeah, it's, it's one of those things that like, if you're not in an artistic um, frame of mind, if you're not an artistically inclined person, particularly a performance inclined person, mm-hmm. you, you wouldn't read that interpretation and that's okay. It's still enjoyable. Right. But for you and I, we're like, we know that guy. We know that pretentious yep. theater guy. We've all talked to this person before. <laughs> You know. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the sting. 
which is a caper film. It was released December 25th, 1973. So right as under the wire as you can get. It was produced by Tony Bill, Michael Phillips, and Julia Phillips. Directed by George Roy Hill. It was written by David S. Ward. Cinematography was by Robert Surtees. Edited by William Reynolds. Music by Marvin Hamlish. It runs 129 minutes. It stars Paul Newman, Robert Redford, Robert Shaw, Charles Durning, Robert Earl Jones, and Eileen Brennan. It was nominated for Best Director, Best Actor for Robert Redford, Best Original Screenplay, Best Score Adaptation, Best Sound, Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Costume Design. It won Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Score Adaptation, Art Direction, Film Editing, Costume Design, and Best Picture. So the story of The Sting is a couple of small-time con men accidentally con a big-time gangster, and the gangster takes revenge on them, and he ends up killing one of the small-time con men. So the surviving one, John Kelly Hooker, played by Robert Redford, eventually goes to Chicago to meet Henry Gondorf, uh, an old friend of his now-deceased partner, and tells Gondorf, I want, a, I want a big con. I want to con him. I want him to lose money. I want him to suffer. Mm-hmm. And then I want to get out. And Gondorf doesn't want to do it at first, but eventually takes some sympathy and decides, let's do it. So they pull off a huge con on Doyle Lonigan, played by Robert Shaw, who... I think he acts a lot tougher than he actually is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and eventually, he is completely taken. They get all their money out of him, and everyone disappears into the night. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, this is another movie. I feel like there were two weekends when I was a kid. That one weekend, we watched The Sting, and the next weekend, we watched American Graffiti. Because those two movies are very, very linked in my mind, Mm -hmm. and I'm not 100% sure why, but I think that might be it. I love this movie. It is fun. It's enjoyable. There's good character, and they they hit you with a twist that you're not expecting. Every time you think you've got it figured out, you, you don't have it figured out, and then... The, everyone gets the ending that they deserve, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was... Um, I don't know. Would, would you describe this as a comedy? Um, no. Because I, 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 I would say it's like an I. action movie. It's like an Oceans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... Because I was saying, I was like, I don't know if I'd say this is funny, but it definitely, like, it's... You know what it is? The, 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 the characters are so likable. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's that aspect. I'm just like, well, just because they're likable doesn't mean they're funny, but maybe because they're charming, you just find everything they say more amusing. Yeah, but... <laughs> and not not even laugh out loud funny. Just no, yeah, just like oh, you constantly smiling. I I found I was just like yeah. Well, the big thing people talked about with this one was the chemistry between Paul Newman and Rob Redford Mm -hmm. in the lead roles, because I forget what movie it was, but they had been in a movie together before this where it was the same director, and that was a big draw for audiences at the time, seeing these guys return to the stage. Yes, the, the two of them have 
like just unbelievable comedy and so that's that's why in my mind robert redford and paul newman have always been associated with each other mm-hmm. um this is definitely an era of movies that i was not not super aware of growing mm-hmm. up but now that i like i'm watching them i'm like oh i understand why i always thought like when you said paul newman you said robert redford right after mm-hmm. incidentally he is the reason that my last car was named robert oh okay because i drove a red ford uh <laughs> <laughs> oh i wanted to hate that but it was cute <laughs> i know it was, it was, i felt exactly the same way my dad named that car he was like yeah it's robert and i was just like why is it robert he's like it's a red ford and i was like what he's like Robert Redford Haley. I'm like, I hate you because I can't unname the car now. <laughs> yeah, it's the thing. It's like I can't get. You could call it something else, but you're like, no, it's, it's, it's always not. gonna be Robert. <laughs> um, I found a lot of like. This is a weird connection to make, but like, um, so the movie Reservoir Dogs. Mm. Um, even though, like, in a in a in a way, they're kind of similar, but the the this is a weird connection to make. So the Reservoir Dogs, um, like that title, is a reference to rats, because mm-hmm. I guess in Los Angeles, um, like that's what they call the that hang out around like the L.A. rivers, Reservoir mm-hmm. Dogs, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and, and like I would never have known that if someone hadn't told me. Yeah. And the sting is a reference to the moment when a con artist finishes the long play, mm-hmm. and it's that pinnacle moment where they take the money and then get the hell out of there, and then like months later the con the the conned person realizes what's happened. Yeah. So the mark I should use the proper terminology. Yeah. And I just thought that was so interesting because when I saw the sting I was like is this like a police movie or something like mm-hmm. a st- but then watching i was like oh, okay so had you never seen it before this no i had not oh but you you know the song the entertainer right oh yeah 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 so everybody knows that particular rag because of this movie that's, right that's why it's like super famous hmm that's okay. okay. That's interesting. I like that you haven't seen it before. I hadn't, other than The Exorcist, I hadn't seen any of these movies prior to uh, to this event, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so what did you think of it then? Like, um, I liked it. It was. Um, I, I always like I always like a caper because it, like comparing it to o- like an oceans movie is so appropriate because you definitely have that feeling of like you forget that they're criminals. Yeah. Like we we were talking earlier about how it's like when you watch um what was that other one I completely forgotten name. a touch of class oh. when you watch a touch of class you're like I know these people are doing a bad thing and I don't like th- them for doing it mm-hmm. but you watch these guys doing their con you're like technically th- this is like ill-advised behavior and yet you're like you're rooting for them yeah, yeah like in those moments where it, they're, they're like on the verge of getting caught or fa- being found out or anything you're just like oh no it's just <laughs> you watch with anxiety because you're like I want these men to succeed in their goal of stealing money it's like you're doing a bad thing for good reasons. It's a very Robin Hood sort of yeah. scenario. Yeah, exactly. I I agree. Like there, every character in this movie is fun and enjoyable and interesting to mm-hmm. watch. Um, I mean, like even Billy, played by Eileen Brennan. Yes. Like she's a madam of a whorehouse, but 
she clearly is a con woman in her own right. Like right. she's obviously run a couple cons. Totally. She knows what she's doing, and it's just like, I I love that, mm-hmm. and I love how deep she is, and she goes in two feet, doesn't even think about it. Like as soon as Henry says we're doing this, she's like, all right, we're doing this. Yeah. I think like they just really succeeded in making super super likable bad guys yeah well it's that thing of like if you're gonna do a story about where your protagonist is of is villainous you've Mm -hmm. got to make them very charming yeah you have to make them really likable and they really succeeded with that yeah yeah and i mean it's hard to go wrong with robert redford and paul newman right like just as actors in their own rights yeah well a fun bit of trivia so i can't recall her name but the costume designer edith head so she when she received her oscar for the uh for the costume design she hit she her i think somewhere in her like victory speech whatever you call it acceptance speech that's what it's called victory <laughs> yeah, speech. victory speech acceptance speech. um her acceptance speech she's like I got to spend several months uh, dressing the two most handsome men in Hollywood. <laughs> so this is kind of like an afterthought. <laughs> like she held up the Oscar. And, uh, but fun fact, so Edith Head, for people who might not know, is the direct inspiration for Edna Mode from the Incredibles movies. I did not know that. And I'd heard that trivia before, but I didn't know what Edith had looked like because I had read it somewhere. I'd heard it in passing. And looking at her, we're looking at a photo of her right now, and you can absolutely see where they got... It wasn't just personality. They very much borrowed her look. Yeah, I strongly recommend if you're listening to this right now and you have you're listening to it on your phone or something, just just Google Edith Head, E D I T H H E A D. Mhm. Apparently she got in a fair bit of trouble for that one though cuz she accepted the Oscar, but then it turns out she hadn't actually done the sketches for the costumes. Oh. She didn't technically design them. And uh I, I guess she got sued by the actual artist after the fact, so... Oh, weird. That makes me think of, like, so many things. Like, what what makes you the costume designer? Is it yes. sketch it, sketches? Is it putting the pieces together? Is it dressing every... Oh, oh. all right. Well, I'm going to marinate on that one for a while. Yeah, time. that's something to think about. <laughs> Especially, like, like, speaking as a visual artist, it's like we run into that sort of thing all the time. Mm-hmm. Where I'm like, to what extent do I own this thing until I like let it fly and then yeah it belongs to whoever yeah exactly let's talk about the music just a little bit sure uh, all the regs are from um, Scott Joplin uh, who was a relatively famous ragtime pianist in the 1930s so that's why like when you think of the 1930s you think of that kind of piano playing man yeah yeah it's it's very very evocative and as a piano player let me tell you the entertainer not an easy rag to play and like rags themselves are very difficult right so i i would love listening to the music in this movie because it's like i i literally grew up wanting to play this right and then i was never able to (laughs) which is very upsetting but it uh so the the whole design idea behind it behind the music and like the title cards and things was to be evocative of those silent films and of the 1930s 
style of film where you would let people know this is what we're doing in every moment. Mm -hmm. And I really like that they use the lingo. So, mm -hmm. like, the hook, the... Uh, the shutout, all that kind of stuff. I, it was like you kind of, you got a little taste of what was going to happen next, mm -hmm. even if you didn't know what those words me meant. Right. You could figure it out as you went along. You're like, oh, okay, that's why this is called the shutout. Well, in a in a weird way, because like, so for people listening that don't know us, we're both tremendous nerds. Oh, huge. And. Um, <laughs> There's a thing that I find a lot in fantasy where, like, it, like some, we'll use Lord of the Rings as an example. Mm -hmm. uh, you have to do your homework with those movies or you're going to be left in the dust. Like, you have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> and, like, in a weird way, the, even though it's it's from the real world and it's a, it's it represents a time in history that is so different from the way things are now, that I kind of liked that. It, it was almost like world building in a way mm, where it was yeah. like, this is such an interesting way of, of like, people don't talk like this anymore. No. And so getting that terminology brought forth is like, oh, I'm traveling to another place. Even in 1973, they didn't talk like that. Exactly. Anymore. And so it's, it, you're right. They did a really good job of taking you right into that world mm -hmm. right off the bat. So we're going to move on now to talk about a movie you were very excited about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we're going to talk about The Exorcist. So The Exorcist is a supernatural horror film. It was released December 26, 1973. Again, right on the line of when it would be eligible. Mm -hmm. Literally four days. It was produced by William Peter Blatty. It was directed by William Friedkin. It was written by William Peter Blatty. Cinematography was by Owen Reisman edited by Evan Lockman and Norman Gay. It was based on the book The Exorcist by William Peter Blatty. The music technically is by Jack Nietzsche. It runs 121 minutes. It stars Ellen Burstyn, Max von Sydow, Lee J. Cobb, Kitty Wynn, Jack McGowan, Jason Miller, Linda Blair, and Mercedes McCambridge. It was nominated for Best Actress for Ellen Burstyn. Best Supporting Actor, Jason Miller. Best Supporting Actress, Linda Blair. Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay. Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Art Direction, and Best Sound Mixing. It won Adapted Screenplay and Sound Mixing. Uh, so The Exorcist is the story of a young 12-year-old possessed girl and her mother's struggle to find a solution and to find I don't want to say a cure but to bring her daughter back mm -hmm. and the journey that they go through and the priest who eventually joins and saves them mm -hmm. so Ryan tell me about this movie okay I want to start out for the listeners by saying I'm a tremendous horror fan mm -hmm. um, I don't even know where to start really um <laughs> First of all, I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, because this was actually how I learned The Exorcist was nominated for a uh, an, Oscar, for an Oscar, which made me, which blew my mind at first. But then I thought, I'm like, you know, we're starting to see it's the idea of a horror movie being nominated for an Oscar because horror is a very underappreciated genre, mm -hmm. or at least in terms of like 
like all the 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 uh, aristocracy of cinema it's not as appreciated as it should be yeah it doesn't receive the same accolades right because it's not considered serious well there's movie people who i think view horror as like it's one step above like a carnival attraction mm-hmm. where it's it's like they think there's here's the haunted house at the stampede mm-hmm. and then here's horror yeah. like one tiny fraction yeah. above and I think that like one thing we're starting to see now because I thought I'm like you know the first It movie was tremendous when it first came out and uh, th- the idea that like horror can have that impact mm-hmm. is really cool and I think I wish it was taken more seriously because of that mm-hmm. and especially because this is a movie that had such a huge impact on the genre of horror going forward. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would argue that The Exorcist was one of the first examples of truly terrifying horror that was, like, blockbuster-level, yeah. wide-reaching. Yeah, because this is before movies like Halloween and um, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes, yeah. yes. But you can tell that this is a massive inspiration them. Oh, totally. And I, I think it's the thing of like, people like to be scared. They, they do. They enjoy that adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a lot of depth in that. And people who discredit it, it it's, I mean, we always, the, the, the idea of like, our fear of something comes from not understanding it. Mm-hmm. I think it's more that because horror is such a polarizing genre it doesn't feel like something that just anyone can get into and i say that as someone who i absolutely feel that i have always avoided horror movies Mm -hmm. for various reasons but it's like now i'm at the age where i'm like well i don't want to try to get into horror movies because i don't understand them and i feel like i'm gonna be overwhelmed and i'm gonna end up not liking them Mm -hmm. and i think what the exorcist was very good for Because I've always talked about how, like, as a horror fan, one thing I find tedious is when a a horror movie is just, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just oversaturated with Mm -hmm. jump scares. Yes. Because that's when I'm like, okay, now you're a a carnival haunted house. Yeah. You know? And uh, I think a movie should, a truly good horror should set a tone Mm -hmm. that sticks with you for a while. And The Exorcist did that almost masterfully. And again, I say this, uh, so this was my first time watching The Exorcist Mm -hmm. and my first time really genuinely watching basically any horror movie. And it's one of those things where like, I've had enough of the story spoiled for me. I mean, it's not that deep of a story, No. um, but I've had enough like little bits and pieces that I wasn't going in like terrified. Like, I don't know what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. I knew what was going to happen overall through the movie, but moment to moment, I didn't know what was going to happen. And... I think the first 15 minutes or so, I was kind of on the edge of my seat, like, are they just going to throw me in right away? Are they Mm going to do that? And then they did the thing that I love in movies, and they had the slow burn. Mm -hmm. And it it brought me in. I I was (laughs) asked by some some friends on a message board, what would you say is one of your top five movies just this morning? And I had to really fight myself to write The Exorcist because it was so masterful so good and i spent the entire time wanting to know what the next part was well and it's a movie that rewards repeated viewings Mm. in the sense that like 
like when I go back and watch it now, there's like that scene where like Reagan has, uh, I forget, I'm trying to remember. She had, it's like one of those like fortune teller things or something. Or no, no, no. She has like some kind of toy that the, the spirit is using to communicate with her. Because she treats it at the first. Ouija board. The Ouija board. Thank you. Sorry. I don't know what the hell I was talking about just there. Was, yeah, Ouija board. I, and she's like, and she says, she asked it a question about like her mom or something. Do you think my mom's attractive? That's what it was. She's like, do you think my mom's pretty? And then it, you just hear it go like, well, she's like, well, that's not very nice. As yeah. it's, and it's like, when you sit there realizing what she's actually talking to and what the implications are, it's even more awful the second time around. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, I really, I enjoyed it. Like I, I, I'm trying to form like actual good words to use instead of just saying, I really liked it. Yeah. I, I, did. Yeah. I genuinely, I enjoyed every moment of it. I liked how they built up, um, Chris and Reagan as like mother daughter parent. <clears throat> yeah. I liked how they introduced um, Father Father Karras, Damien, just very slowly as like you don't understand why he's coming into this. Like you, at first, I didn't get like why why do I care about this guy and his mom? Mm-hmm. Like what purpose does this serve to me? But then as it builds and they start adding more and more layers, it was like oh, I understand why he's so upset about this because he's terrified that his mother is going to hell uh, because he's, he his mother had to go to it, had to. His mother was sent to an institution and mm-hmm. he doesn't necessarily want that to happen. And so as, as the movie built up and up and up, it was like you, sorry, it was for me just so engaging that I didn't want it to end. Right, way. yeah. Well, and it is that idea of, um, like, there's so many things they did in that movie that for a variety of reasons, you couldn't do today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, it's funny because it's one of those movies that, like, if you've never seen it before, and I'm sure you felt this going in, it, it's like, there's a lot of anticipation because especially people who grew up, who saw it when they were younger in the 70s will tell you, like it's this it's this sort of like holy grail of scary mm-hmm. like i remember like growing up in like the 90s my mom would talk about it and she's like i had to shut it off i couldn't finish it and i and when you're a little kid you're like holy shit yeah like this yeah. must turn your hair white so i remember yeah. when i was like older like i was like 13 or something and i finally put it on to watch it and i'm like there's parts of this that are terrifying but there are certain things that like for a 2020 audience, if you tried to have a scene with a little girl screaming, your mother sucks cocks in hell, you're going to get a laugh before you're going to, yeah. before you're going to, cause like in those times, like you, you get your ass whipped for talk for talking back, never yeah. mind swear. So like seeing a little girl talk like that was so shocking for audiences. But yeah. nowadays you just be like, what a bitch she is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then the commentary of like, Oh, she must have been raised poorly, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's one of those movies that where American graffiti kind of owns its time period and therefore makes itself timeless. Mm-hmm. The Exorcist is 
it's timeless in that I will always enjoy watching this movie, mm-hmm. but it is incredibly dated in that it started a lot of the tropes and techniques yeah. and styles. And so I can't watch it and not see where all of the other things that I know have been inspired by it. Mm-hmm. And, and it's things like, I don't know how many like cracked or Buzzfeed articles I've read that are like, 10 secrets of filming that you didn't know and it's gonna freak you out when you learn and it's like the pea soup uh vomit thing that, yes that reagan vomits pea soup so it's like okay i knew that was going to happen mm-hmm. so it didn't make it um shocking when it happened i was still grossed out yeah and and so like for me now watching it, it's like i don't look at it in its time i look at it in my time and mm-hmm. i think that's a disservice to the movie and that's that's how i watch it's totally totally on me and it's almost unavoidable to do that kind of thing mm-hmm. right but um and like just some of the things that went on like behind the scenes where like i was watching because i watched it and then i watched the documentary about like do you have like the special edition no i just i literally just found it on youtube it was like (laughs) the making of the exorcist and it was explaining like well because what's weird is like so i was raised catholic Mm -hmm. and i'm no i I won't get into too much personal detail but i let's just say i'm no longer catholic so when i see movies about like demonic possession now i'm just like oh shut up like (laughs) i'm the devil are you yeah cornball move along (laughs) like so like the devil doesn't scare me anymore but like the a lot of the things in that movie um that like went on behind the scenes where linda blair was talking about like she's like there were things that happened on set that i could probably i probably should have sued for yeah the exorcist is like notorious again on those like top 10 lists of like just a really bad work environment oh yeah well it's i would almost compare in in that regard i'm like it's very similar to the shining Mm. in the fact that like shelly duvall was literally abused by kubrick Mm -hmm. during the filming to the point that i don't think she ever went back to acting again she i I believe that's correct yeah yeah she had a complete nervous break like immortal performance so it was a great send-off but it's one of those things. And, and, and I mean, that's a discussion for another time, but I think that it's one of those cases where it's like, was it actually worth it? And yes, the director, yeah. the director says, absolutely, I got exactly the performance I want. Mm-hmm. The actors, you ask them, was it worth it? And they're like, hell no, I could have done that if they had just said, this yeah. is what I want. And like, yeah, as a director, you, you, you want to do those bold things, but you have to keep in mind your actors are still people. Yeah. Yeah. And like they're not, it, and believe me, I've directed plays for about 40 seconds. Um, <laughs> it's, you do start to get that ego of like, I, I, cause there's a weird power that makes you feel when you tell people to do things and they just do it. Yeah. And especially because you don't feel like you have to push them. You just, you forget that, you know, they want to do it to some yeah. extent. Yeah. And, uh, I think that you just, there's just so many things on the set where I'm like, oh, if you tried to make The Exorcist today with that level of intensity, you'd be there'd be so many lawsuits. Yeah. And I, I think that there's a part of it where, like, it would almost be easier to make The Exorcist today because you wouldn't have to do those practical effects. That is the thing, right? But I would also say that it would make it a worse movie. I, firm, I think if you tried to do The Exorcist today with a lot of CGI, it would be very forgettable. Yeah. I agree. 
Because how many movies now try to be The Exorcist, and yeah. it's like, you're not edgy. I mean, how many advertisements for paranormal activity come out, and I just roll my eyes at it? I'll never watch it, but I roll my eyes because I'm like, it's it's going to be a CGI monster. Mm-hmm. It's not going to feel real, and I'm not going to care. Exactly. that, And it's that's why I like when I see nowadays some creators are returning to conventional effects with the exorcist the the strain they went through to get that very visceral reaction in those effects was i think was worth it mm-hmm. um but i'm also not linda blair so yeah yeah and that's the thing it's like i i can put aside that working on that movie must have been just god awful mm-hmm. and enjoy the fact that like that was a really good movie i I wanted the characters to be better in every moment. Like, I wanted, I constantly wanted Reagan to, like, oh, fight back, honey, you can do it, mm-hmm. you can get there. I wanted her mom to be happy again. I wanted Father Damien to um, succeed and survive. And, mm-hmm. like, I wanted that fairy tale, gentle, light music and, mm-hmm. like, sunny windows. Everybody walks away and goes, we're never going to talk about this again. Yes. And they lived happily ever after. But I didn't get that. You know what you had? You had like a Shawshank Redemption moment where like... Don't. Mm. What, 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 what's his... Uh, Morgan Freeman's voiceover comes in like, I'd love to tell you that everybody walked away from this perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> but this ain't no fairy tale. I, <laughs> You're like, oh no. Uh, I don't like Shawshank Redemption. Fair that's, enough. That's a different episode. We'll... Yeah. we'll think it was nominated at some point so i might get to it we'll see but that idea of like you want everything but that is like true that is to me such a traditional like way that a horror movie should flow where like you want everything to go well and it doesn't and i i think that it's it's part of the like um suspension of disbelief Mm -hmm. that i go into a movie with because I don't expect every movie to have a happy ending. Right. But I wanted it because I liked these characters so much. Yes. Because I felt they deserved it after everything they'd gone through. Well, and that was the thing, too. Like, when they... I, the documentary I was watching was explaining that they had a very difficult time casting the role of Reagan. Because mm-hmm. they were like, how do we find somebody who is going to simultaneously be able to pull off sweet and, and innocent... And also, and also the 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 ultimate embodiment of evil. Yeah. And uh, they even once they had cast um, Linda Blair, they sent her headshot to the makeup designer, mm-hmm. and he got back to them saying, "How the hell am I supposed to make this scary? <laughs> like she has such pinchable cheeks. How am I supposed to turn this into a monster?" And I, my opinion is that she should have been nominated and should have won Best Actress. Oh, absolutely. Like, what she achieved in that movie is incredible. I I could not imagine a better performance. She literally... As far as I'm concerned, she could have gone up to every actress at that who was nominated for that... that award and could have just been like did you break your back while you were working on your movie they'd be like no she'd be like get out of my way (laughs) (laughs) um i do want to give the shout out to uh mercedes mccambridge who did the voice of possessed reagan oh is that right it was not linda blair who did it so initially they wanted linda to do it and then it was one of those like uh, it's just not quite right if we use her voice. It's like David Prowse's Darth Vader. Exactly. Like, yeah. you, you could, but it's just not quite right. Also, shout out, because 
James Earl Jones's father was in The Sting. Was he now? Yeah, he played... God, why can't I see it now? He played Luther. Um, Robert Earl Jones, Robert right Robert Earl there. Jones, yeah. So. Wow. There you go. Full circle on that one. Jeez. Um, okay. But yeah, so Mercedes McCambridge, apparently, it's... I'm unclear, so I didn't watch any of these documentaries. Mm. Just in the research that I was doing, as far as I can tell, she was very difficult to work with, or the director was very difficult to work with. I'm sure it was both. Yeah, could have been a little bit of both, but I mean, what Linda Blair did lying in that bed, and mm-hmm. then the voice that comes out of her, it like it is those two parts have to come together to make it just mm-hmm. as wonderful as it was. And I, I mean, every moment I was cheering for Reagan to get out and to survive. Well, and another thing that that movie did for people at that time, because like I said, like, we look at it now and it seems like, eh, parts of this aren't that scary. Yeah. yeah. Like for the legendary status it has, there's certain moments where you're like, this is like, they're not necessarily corny, but you're like, this isn't that scary. I wasn't hiding under the covers but right. I mean I was scared the whole way through although to be fair the part that the parts that really upset me were when they were like doing the medical procedures and that's only because they were a using those syringes wrong and b I can't watch needles go into skin fair enough that's just a queasy Haley thing. Mm-hmm. the story that it, that Blatty based his book on is of um, a child we don't actually know the child's name mm. he was referred to either as Roland Doe or as Robbie Manheinz. So we, we have no idea who this child was. Mm-hmm. We don't actually know where um, in the States it happened. We just know it was late 1940s. It was a supposedly 14-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. And I think um, it is an interesting exploration of the idea of, like, what do you do when something like this happens? Mm-hmm. Like, where, like, to quote a famous film from the 80s, who are you going to call? You yep. know, like. Yep. <laughs> Not the quote I was expecting you to give, but I. No, really but um, but like all jokes aside, it is the idea of like, because it, it it's even if you don't believe in that sort of thing, it's like, it's that feeling of like going to the doctor mm-hmm. and they look at an ailment and they're like, I don't know what to tell you. I've never seen this before. Um, but what I love about it is it was um. The way it redefined horror because it set that new standard of like extreme we have defined Mm -hmm. and that opened the door for things that even though they didn't necessarily go to that level it it, it's like when you set this new intense like this is the this is the 11 out of 10 on the scale it allows people to experiment with things that are they wouldn't have been able to before but now they can now that this new this is the new, like, highest you can go. It's Someone like, has to break that barrier yeah. at some point. It's like, okay, this is the new 11, so what used to be an 8 is now like a 6. Yeah. And we yeah. can do the 6 now because the new 11 has been set. Yeah, we feel comfortable with the 6. All right, so, Ryan, this is the reason for the show. Right. What would you give the Best Picture Oscar to? Um... Oddly enough, I think I'm actually going to give it to a touch of class. What? No. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) No, obviously The Exorcist, because as good as, and it's not just because I'm a shill for horror. Mm -hmm. um, It's the fact that as good as the rest of these movies were, none of them redefined their genre and set a new precedent. Okay. In the sense of like, 
like people could love um like caper movies and they could say like the sting is really great yeah but it's not any better or worse necessarily than like oceans 11 which is a comparable film meaning like but meaning like you watch oceans 11 and you don't automatically go oh they're trying to be like the sting Okay. Yeah, like this is something similar. It's yeah. in the same line of, of thought and storytelling, but it's very much still its own thing. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like it's stealing anything or – or, and there's nothing – there's no trope that was started by The Sting. Mm-hmm. There's no trope that was started by American Graffiti. Mm-hmm. But – There was, though. I disagree with you on that point because, like, Happy Days was – Okay, yeah, I guess a, in that was way. was a TV series that ran for how long? And there sure. Is, uh, American Graffiti also inspired the Lords mm-hmm. of Flatbush and Cooley High. Okay, that sure. I'll disagree with you on, but I get what you're saying. Yeah, meaning like, like literally, when they make a movie nowadays, a horror movie about um, an ex that involves an exorcism, mm-hmm. they do, they either just flat out go like, "We're trying to copy The Exorcist," yep. or they do everything they can to be like. We're trying really hard to not copy The Exorcist. Yeah. That's why, like, you notice the title. There's always... They, they, they always want to shoehorn the word exorcism or exorcist in there, mm-hmm. but they have to put something else in because they're like, we can't be that blatant. What, what was that one? It's like The Exorcism of Emily Rose. That's... The, like yeah. That? And then there's, like, The Exorcism... They, they love saying The Exorcism of insert name here. Like, yeah, even though we don't care who this person is. And uh, it also... Another trope that... Um, I, I feel this is a trope set by the exorcist that was blown out of the out of control by the either either the grudge or the ring series mm-hmm. it's the trope of the ghostly girl with the long hair and the white nightgown as as a character designer and a visual artist if there's anyone listening who is designing a ghost for a movie right now enough with the long hair and the dirty nightgown it's been done do something else all right enough already so ryan has laid down the law sorry i get very that is such i give weird hang-ups and that's one of them oh wow um so i'm gonna ask you another question while i answer that the same question is would you have nominated another movie in that year from 1973 1973. so i have it up here i will let you scroll sure um while i chatter a little bit so um i actually agree with you i would have nominated i would have given the award to the exorcist but for entirely different reasons because i think the key with giving an academy award is not about how groundbreaking is it or how much does it change perspectives or how does it um completely shift a genre Mm -hmm. it's about and it's not about how timeless or how long lasting or what the legacy is it's about of the movies that we had to choose from which one did what a movie is supposed to do best which one brought all of these elements together which one took you away for however long it is Mm -hmm. and which one made you forget about everything else that's going on and the sting is a very close second for me i adore the sting but i think the exorcist did it just that little bit better as far as what movie i would go with um there's a lot to choose from here i know 1973 was one of those movies was one of those years where 
there was a lot of really good movies in their own ways. Like, mm-hmm. Live and Let Die came out that year. There's a version of The Wicker Man that came out. That's the, the good version, the non-Nicolas Cage okay, version. Okay, so that, that is yeah. like the first Wicker Man. That's the yeah. one everybody likes. I've also Although, not seen that. I guess, you know what? To be fair to Nicolas Cage, good depends on what you're looking for. If you're looking for funny and entertaining, then the Nicolas Cage version is much better. My thing with movies is always... Does it take me into its world? Do I forget what else is going on? Yeah. And and I should be entertained when I watch a movie. You know what? I'm, I'm torn here because as I'm looking at the list, there's two that catch my attention. Yeah. Oh, Westworld came out this year. Oh, did it now? Wow. Okay, sorry. Three that catch my attention. <laughs> um, the three that catch my attention the most on this list were Westworld, um, Soylent Green, and Wicker Man. Yeah, those are the three that caught my eye too. Now, admittedly, I don't think I've actually ever watched any of them, but like uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, like the film version of Jesus Christ Superstar came out mm-hmm. this year as well. So I, I think if I'm trying to decide what I would nominate instead, I would have taken out A Touch of Class Yep. And I would have nominated Jesus Christ Superstar. Oof, this is tough. Um, I think I would have taken out uh, Touch of Class, and I would replace it with... God, I think I'm going to go with Soylent Green. Yeah. But with no... Meaning no disrespect to the other two. No, no. But I think that's the one I'd go with. And that's the thing. You can love a film and not and not think that it's worthy of awards and accolades. Well, thank you for joining me, Ryan. Thank you for having me. This was really enjoyable. This was a lot of fun. If people want to find more of your wonderful art, where can they find you? Uh, They can find me on Instagram at... uh ryana.art for the so my last name is spelt e as in elephant a as in apple i as in ipad and d as in dog (laughs) because apparently um what's the not vowels consonants apparently consonants didn't reach ireland until 2008 because (laughs) gaelic is just nothing but vowels and apostrophes it's enraging. <laughs> Excellent. That's, that's the way we want it to go. Yep. Thanks for listening to Nominated. You can find us all over social media at Nominated Pod. You can find Ryan's work on Instagram at ryanaid.art. That's R-Y-A-N-E-A-I-D dot A-R-T. Next episode's movies are from 1962. The Music Man, Mutiny on the Bounty, The Longest Day, Lawrence of Arabia, and To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, one quick housekeeping thing. What's the verdict on swearing, yay or nay? Oh, I don't give a fuck. Oh, okay, perfect. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. That train of thought pulled out of the station before I was ready. <laughs> <laughs> it was long gone. Oh, dear. <laughs> Um, Is that his name? Father? Yeah, sorry, I I, I don't want to confuse it with the omen. Don't do that. (laughs) Uh, Where Father Damien... Is that a landline? (laughs) Yeah. That's a throwback. (laughs) Upload this part, it's great content. Hey, you didn't... Did you listen all the way to the end where I add all my bloopers? Oh, I did not hear that part. (laughs)
I think I was trying to keep a cat from going in a bathroom. It wasn't supposed to. But anyway, um, 